Okay, everybody, should we uh, continue on together? It is good to see you. Happy February, if such a thing exists. Um, if you're new, we're always glad to see new people amongst us. It's lovely to be sort of bursting out of the cafe more and more. If you can't see me, you're welcome to move. There's a few other seats like dotted around, but I will try and keep you all in eye line. On that note, actually, we're going to be in the auditorium, back in the auditorium next Sunday. They've put their brand new chairs in there. So you're going to get some brand new luxury chairs to sit on, and uh, we'll kind of see how it works for us in there. So lots of change, as always, in King's Church, but I know you guys love change, and you embrace it. We are in, uh, we're part three this morning of a new teaching series um, from the Bible. We're teaching the book of 1 John. And uh, if you're new to the book of 1 John, or you're new to the Bible, or you're new to kind of Christianity full stop, uh, A, you're really welcome here, and B, it's helpful to know what the kind of, I guess, big, big, uh, big message of 1 John is. What John is basically communicating, or what God is communicating through his word, through John, is really this. We call it loved that we might love. Because what John wants to say is, if you know, and by know he means you've experienced and received the love of God, if you know the love of God, then you can love. That's what he wants to say. If you know the love of God, then you can love God, you can love what he commands, and you can love people, specifically the people within the local church. That's the kind of big overall message of the letter. It's five chapters long. We're in chapter two. We got to verse six last week, and God was really speaking to us last week, I think really helping us to step into kind of real deal, authentic Christianity, and he's going to speak to us again. Here we go. Verse seven of chapter two. Beloved, remember what a good father John is. He uses the language that communicates his love for the churches that he's writing to. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. It's good. So in last week, if you weren't here or you haven't caught up with it on the podcast, John was really challenging us, or God was really challenging us through what, what John says. And John was saying that there is, if you are claiming to be a Christian, there are some evidences of that. If you are walking in real deal, authentic Christianity, there will be fruit of that, evidence of that. And he's using, you might have noticed, he's using the same simple metaphor this week that he used last week, the metaphor of light and darkness, comparing the two things. And he's saying again, that if you claim to walk in the light, to be united to the light, then you won't be in darkness, you'll be in light. If you're claiming to be united to the light, Jesus Christ, then your life will evidence the fact that you're united to Jesus. Your life will be full, for example, of generosity and, and holiness and kindness and, and purity and joyful obedience 
as a result of being in the light. Your life will be like the light. Then he also says, but when you do, because we all do, when you do stumble into darkness, he said last week, an authentic real deal Christianity won't deny that. A real deal Christian is secure and confident, not full of fear or pride, so we're able to confess and repent when we do stumble into the darkness. That was a big point from last week. And we'll enjoy the joy through confession and repentance of being freshly united to Jesus and tapping in to our unity with him at the cross and being changed in the process. That's what he was saying last week. And now he continues the same theme, light and darkness, claiming to walk in the light but not the darkness. And he now says there is another example of real deal, authentic Christianity. I think the key verse is in verse 9. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In other words, what John's saying, in our language, if if you like, is if you're an authentic Christian, along with a number of things, you'll also be marked out by loving other Christians, in simple terms. Now, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, I'm guessing this is not a new idea that Christians are called to love each other in a very, very special way. If you're not a Christian, I'm guessing this is probably not that new idea either. You'll have a notion, I'm sure, that Christians are, at least in theory, supposed to be loving people. But before we kind of dive into, well, how can we be an even more loving people? How can we really get into the depths of what it means to be known and loved? I want to take a kind of further step back, or an initial step back, if you like, and say, well, what is this love? Before we say, how can we be it, or do it, or grow in it, what do we actually mean by this love? What does John mean? What does the Bible mean by love within the local church? Because love can mean all kinds of things, right? I'm sure even now you might have song lyrics and so forth going through your mind. I mean, for centuries, poets and playwrights and and philosophers and, and all kinds of people have been engaged in trying to understand what is love, and writing poems and songs and plays and, and various things. Just yesterday, I was with a, a bunch of mates who met up to, um, to watch the rugby. And in the, in the, in the morning, I was speaking to a mate of mine. His name's Andy. And he's telling me about his new little baby girl. Showing me photos of his, of his little baby girl. And at one point, he just said, without any kind of you know, invitation or being forced as a way, he just said, I just, I just love my little girl, he said. I was like, no, it's amazing. I love mine too. And then later on, we're watching the rugby. And we're all of us getting super excited by the outstanding performance that was England yesterday. And there was a player called Mako Vunapolo who was playing particularly well for England. And at one point, this, this friend of mine called Andy, I, just, <laughs> I heard him as, as Mako Vunapolo smashed another Irishman to the floor. I heard Andy from behind me say, I just love that guy. <laughs> I was like, I know, I love him too. And my friend Andy had used the word love in, in two very different ways about his little girl that he's brought into this world, and about this hulking the rugby player who was just smashing people yesterday. And I didn't say, Andy, I can't believe you've used love in those two different ways. You really ought to think about your definition. Of course I didn't, because we get, don't we, that love is used in all kinds of ways to mean all kinds of different things. But what is John and the Bible meaning when they exhort brothers and sisters in Christ to love each other? What is, the, what is he actually getting at? What does love mean? So question one. I've actually got four points this morning, so I'm going to trump George with my four. Question one, what is this love? And I think the clue is in verse seven and eight. The clue is in verse seven and eight. John says, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, John's saying, there's an old commandment that's always been true for the people of God. But in Jesus Christ, it's become new and it's been implanted in you through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't, I don't know, can't prove it, but I suspect that when John was writing these words as an old man, kind of AD 80 something, I think he was probably remembering about 50 years earlier a conversation that he overheard between Jesus. Because as Jason was telling us two weeks ago, John walked with Jesus and testified to the the man that he saw. And Matthew in his gospel reports on the conversation I suspect John is thinking of. It won't be on the screen, but I'll read it to you. In Matthew 22, uh, John would have overheard this conversation almost certainly. And the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 22 asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? In other words, they're trying to catch him out. But they're trying to say, what's the, how would you summarize all our hundreds of commandments? What would you say kind of encapsulates the whole thing? And Jesus, without even pausing for breath, I suspect, says, it's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And Jesus, when he said that, in turn, was quoting from Leviticus, a book in the Old Testament, where that first commandments, or those two first commandments, were given. And, and what Jesus is doing is kind of really reflecting the, 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 the heart of the Father, the heart of the Godhead, about the, the overall purposes for humanity, which is the, the kind of, Jesus saying the big picture of the whole thing. Take a step back, and it can all be summed up like this, that God's purposes are that humans would love him with all their hearts, and then from that overflow, would be able to love each other. That's kind of the summary, in some senses, of the Bible. It's what Jesus wants to say, and I think that's what John is harking back to when he refers to the old commandment that's become new. And the second greatest commandment, God says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which means, I suppose, in simple terms, that the same good that we all naturally seek for ourselves that most of us don't need much invitation to consciously seek our own good, our own comfort, our own security, our own flourishing. John's saying, that level of good that you seek for yourself, once you're in Christ, I want you to seek that for other people. To love your neighbor as yourself. It's a very distinct kind of love. A very distinct kind of love. It's a self-giving, sacrificial, I seek your greatest good over and above even mine, love. And it was such a distinct type of love that actually the New Testament writers kind of adopted a new word to describe it. It was that special and unique. They had a number of words. So yesterday, me and Andy only had one word for love to describe everything from our little girl to a rugby player. But in the Greek, the New Testament, they've got a number of different words to describe different types of love. They've got a word for love that describes sexual passion and love, eros. They've got a word for love that describes love between friends or or brothers and sisters. They had a a word for love that would describe the love between parents and children or even for for your nation. Then they had a a special, separate, distinct word for love called agape. And that's the word that John uses, agape. 
And it's the word that Paul often uses in his letters. And it's a very distinct, special kind of love. And it taps into this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. One scholar translates it like this. Agape love is unconditional love that devotes total commitment to seek your highest best no matter how anyone may respond. This form of love, agape, is totally selfless and does not change whether the love given is returned or not. It's a remarkable type of love, agape love. Now these are, these are challenging words, I think, already. They might even be inspiring to think about this kind of love. And what would it be to have more and more of it at play in the local church? But what does it actually look like? Because at the moment, these are words describing the concept of love. What does this kind of agape love actually look like? Question two, what does it look like? Those of us who are teenagers of the 90s might remember a band called Extreme uh, in the 90s. And, uh, and they wrote a song which has some fascinating lyrics. I'll just, I won't sing them to you. I'll just read them to you. Uh, they won't be on the screen. It like, goes like this. Is not the words I want to hear from you Sorry, it's not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that that I want. Not to say, but if you only knew, sorry. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel, more than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. What would you do if my heart was torn in two? More than words to show you feel that your love for me is real. What would you say if I took those words away? Then you couldn't make things new just by saying I love you. I think it's quite a profound set of lyrics in many ways. The, the, the writer's saying it's like, you keep on saying the words I love you, but, but what will you do to show me that you love me? And what about if my heart was so broken that words wouldn't actually do anything? What then would you do to show me that your love was genuine? That is a profound question. It's not about the words necessarily that describe love or that we might say. What is the activity of love? It's a great question. There's a um, small group of British philosophers that were around about the same time in the 90s. Uh, They published some of their work in the 90s. You you may have heard of them. They went by the name of the Spice Girls. And they kind of encapsulated their philosophical views on life in one sentence. When they sang, don't tell me you love me, just tell me you'll be there. Don't tell me you'll love me, just tell me you'll be there. In other words, words only get us so far. What is the activity that demonstrates love? Good questions. I think we can take a step forward by going back into the Bible to see one of the most famous descriptions of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul does show us some of the activity of love. He helps us to see what it looks like. Even if you're brand new to church, I'm guessing you may have heard these words written. They're amongst the most beautiful and well-known words about love over the last 2,000 years. You may have heard them at weddings and so forth. And God says this in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about agape love. That's the word that Paul uses. Agape, love is patient and kind. Agape love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
And when I was just praying over this, it was that last phrase that just really hit me afresh, that agape love endures all things. I don't think it's an accident that Paul has kind of finished that paragraph on that idea, that this kind of unique sacrificial love endures all things. Let's go a bit further. What did Jesus say about agape love? What did Jesus say that agape love that endured all things looked like? He said this in John chapter 15. This is John's gospel account. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. In other words, the ultimate agape love that endures all things, Jesus says, looks like this. That, you would, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then back in 1 John, in our letter, in the next chapter that we'll get to in a week or two's time, in 1 John 3.16, John, who wrote the gospel account, and then all these years later, is thinking about that, and he says, by this we know love. How do you want to know agape love, John says in 1 1 John 3.16? You can know what it is by looking at he who laid down his life for us. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And then the big punchline from John, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I think this is at the heart of what agape love looks like. An actual laying down of lives for each other. A sense of self-giving, self-sacrificial. I will do whatever it takes to pursue your good even over above mine. This is a radical calling. And I want to encourage you, King's Church, we do see this. I do see this. I have tasted and experienced this in the life of this family. But it's, it's a, nonetheless an enormous call to even continue to pursue, laying lives down. Let me just tell you a story that is hard to hear, but I think it just helps us to drill this into reality a little bit. In March 2018... Uh, I guess a very troubled man, he must have been a very troubled man, carried out an awful terrorist attack in France, March of last year. Uh, He took some people hostage uh, in a supermarket in France. He killed two of them. Police were able to release all of them bar one. And there was one uh, lady left uh, under this terrorist hostage um, in a supermarket, March last year. And things were incredibly tense, as you can imagine. People were wondering, is there any way we can get this last hostage out? Is there any way we can, we can not allow another uh, victim in this horrible affair? At which point, something truly remarkable happened as people wondered what to do with this remaining hostage in the situation. A police officer by the name of Arno Beltram volunteered to swap himself for the hostage. And the police allowed this to happen. The hostage taker agreed. Arno Beltran entered the supermarket instead of the hostage. He cleverly laid down his, his phone within the supermarket so the police could hear what was going on. And three more hours passed as people wondered how this would end. And the tension only must have increased and ratcheted up. And then suddenly gunshots were heard. So the police had no choice but to raid the supermarket and to try and bring this to an end. And they killed the hostage taker and the thing was over. Except they looked to one side and they realized that Arno Beltram had just been killed just before, minutes before, by the hostage taker. And Arno, Arno Beltram's brother said this last year Arno gave his life for strangers. He must have known, uh, he must have known that he didn't really have a chance. If that, is, if that doesn't make him a hero, I don't know what would. 
That was all over the news last year. You may have heard, heard about it. And what the media were less likely to report is that Arno Beltram had recently embraced Christianity or certainly taken steps exploring what Christianity meant for him. Now, let's be clear. Lots of people who aren't Christians or who reject Christianity have done extraordinary things, given their lives for people. We know that. But nonetheless, for Arno, Arno uh, Beltram, something, I think, had got deep into his soul must have done. Something had captivated him about the agape, sacrificial, self-giving love and life and message of Jesus Christ that it caused him to do this remarkable thing. It caused him, having received something or at least explored something of agape love, it caused him to demonstrate it. And not for a friend, but for a complete stranger. At which point, maybe your reaction is maybe similar to mine. On the one hand, uh, I'm sure, like me, you are full of awe and admiration. Wow, how, how, how could, how did someone find the courage to do something like that? As his brother said, he must have known how this was going to end, or at least suspected how this was going to end. I'm in awe of him. And on the other hand, my other reaction, maybe yours is too, is like, I don't know if I would do that. I'm in awe of that, but I'm not sure I would be capable of it. I'm not sure that I would pursue somebody else's greatest good of life itself over and above even mine. I'd like to think I would. I'd like to write myself into the hero stories in the movies. I'm just not sure I can play the part. I do know one thing. If I was that last remaining hostage that woman kept in the supermarket, I know that I might not be able to give that kind of agape love, but if I was her, I know one thing. I would be desperate to receive it. And that, I think, partly gets to the heart of agape love. We long to see it in action. We love to receive it ourselves, but it's really hard to give. You might say, well, yeah, maybe. That's quite an extreme example. You know, it's, it kind of sounds theoretical almost. I, I, I'm in part of King's Church. And I don't feel like there's many opportunities where I'm being asked to literally give my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ. It sounds a bit theoretical. Well, maybe. But let's take a, maybe a more obvious example. What about forgiveness? Which over and over again, the local church is, in, is exhorted not just to enjoy from God, but to engage in with each other. You see, if you, if you know you've got it wrong, even if it's just a, a careless word towards a brother or sister in Christ in the church, you know you've got it wrong, you know you've, just, you've caused hurt or harm in some way. When someone says to you, something along the lines of, that's, that's okay, I, I forgive you, Let's, let's, let's start again. Let's learn together. I'm for you. I love you. How can we move forwards together as a brother or sister in Christ? That is a wonderful thing to receive, isn't it? Receiving forgiveness. Ah, oh, oh, I can breathe. We can start again. We can move forward. It's, it's good. In fact, it's even better. That's a good thing to receive. But turn it around. What about if you're the one that's been hurt, that's been harmed, and you've got to give the agape love? It's a bit harder, isn't it? It stings. It costs. I love receiving forgiveness. It's great. Thank you. Or off again. You asked me to give forgiveness. Whoa. But it hurts. You've harmed me. Agape love is great to receive. It's hard to give. 
What about this one? What about if someone says to you, listen, I've, I've just been praying for you for the last couple of weeks. I just felt God encourage me to, to take some time out to pray for you. I, I felt God begin to speak to me for you. I wasn't quite sure, so I've just been praying again, and, and I've written a few things down. Do you mind if I just like, communicate to you something of what I think God's heart for you is? Like, who doesn't feel loved by that? Depending on what they say, obviously, but it's, <laughs> who doesn't feel loved by that? But to give it, to give that, that requires some, some time and, and, some, and some, some sacrifice to put time aside with, for God, with God, for someone else. We love to see agape love in action. We love to receive it. But it's just not always easy to give. Or is it just me? Because you're looking at me like, oh no, I don't. Thank you. So why do we find it's like, what, what prevents it? And please don't hear me wrong. This is not like a, bit, a, a criticism. This is a, a loving family community in many, many ways. If you're new here, the more that you get stuck in here, I, I can promise you, you will encounter remarkable love in this community and family. But it also comes hard sometimes. What prevents this love? Let me just get to that in a slightly kind of roundabout way. So kind of come with me on my little roundabout thought process. Um, there's a TV series at the moment out called Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you've seen it. I personally wouldn't watch it. Um, bluntly speaking, I've seen the adverts for it. And if you want to walk in light and not darkness, I, I wouldn't be watching that. But, but I have read some of the book uh, written by Margaret Atwood. Um, and not, not all of it, but bits of it. And she's not a Christian, as far as, as, far as I know. Um, but she wrote this. God is love, they once said. But we reversed that. And love like heaven, was always just around the corner. The more difficult it was to love the particular man besides us, the more we believed in love, abstract and total. We were waiting always for the incarnation, that word made flesh. I don't think she's a Christian. I think she's kind of using Christian language. But I think she's getting at something very interesting and insightful. Initially, she's saying... Romantic love, there was, there was this idea in old-fashioned, out-of-date out of Christianity that God is love. But she's saying, actually, what we've done is reverse that, and we've said love is God. And so now we pursue this idea that love, romantic love, specifically in this example, that is going to bring us, that will be like the word made flesh, the romantic love. If we can experience it in the flesh of the right man, the right woman, then that will be what we need. And she's being honest, she's saying we've reversed the idea of God is love to say love is God. I'm not sure we can argue with that in 2019, that we have made a God of romantic love and fulfillment and sexual passion and so forth. God is love, they once said, but we reversed that. I don't think she's a Christian, but like all truth, all truth ultimately comes from God's truth, right? And the Bible's been saying something like this for a long, long time. In Romans chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes this about what sin effectively is and how it's made itself known in people. He says, people, all people, have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, Paul's saying, God, the God who is love, is the only one who is worthy of ultimate worship and ultimate love. But what sin has done, and to quote Margaret Atwood, what's happened is we've reversed that. 
We've reversed the created, we've reversed the creator for the created. We've exchanged, to use Paul's language. We've reversed, to use Margaret Atwood's language, creator for created things. We've stopped looking and worshipping at the creator, God himself, and instead given ourselves to created things. And whether that's the specific point of making romantic love like a God, desperately hoping that it will fulfill us and complete us, whether it's the more general point that we, we love in harmful ways sometimes all kinds of created things because we hope they'll give us what only the creator can give. The overall point I think that's coming through that Paul is saying, and the Bible makes clear, is that sin has corrupted what love really is. And it's certainly corrupted and stained and reversed agape love. For example, if we're honest, I think often we will love people for what they think they will give us in return. You say, no, some of you got great poker faces. It's really fascinating to preach at. We will love, I think, sometimes for what we think we'll get in return. So if we invite someone over for a meal, we, we, we value hospitality in this church, we talk about creating a seat at our table for anyone and everyone in order to bless them and extend the blessing of God to them. How often do we make an invitation for a meal and either consciously or subconsciously, what are we hoping for? One in return. Preferably better. Agape love is hard to give. Because agape love is not contingent upon getting anything in return. Anything in return. That's why it's a beautiful thing to receive and a really hard thing to give. And what's more, just to push on us here, because John pushes on us here, he doesn't just exalt the idea and the remarkable challenge and the beauty of agape love. He basically says, if you are a real deal Christian, an authentic Christian, you will demonstrate agape love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. John, come on, come on, you're beating us up last week, you're you're giving us a tough time again this week. I don't know about you, I am so grateful that I am in a church where there is agape love being demonstrated. And I want to be in a church like that, don't you? I want to be in a church where people will say to me, I've been praying for you for the last few weeks. I've been fasting. I think I've heard the heart of God for you. Can I share that with you? I want to be in a church like that, don't you? I want to be in a church where people will say, do you, you can't pay your, 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 your rent this week? Let me pay that for you out, out of generosity, which I've seen happen in this church, by the way. I want to be in a church. People say, I love you so much that I'm going to bring a challenge to you because I think it's for your greatest good, even if it means that I look unpopular or that we have a falling out. I love you this much. I'm going to bring something for your great... I want to be in a church like that. And thank you for building a church like that. I want to be in a church like that. I just find it really hard to be one of the Christians who does it. So, fourth and final point. How can we love like this? How can we love like this? Back into 1 John 2, verse 8. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. It's talking about the wonderful truth of the gospel, which is that simply through faith in what Jesus has done, we become united to him and all that he is and all that he has. So you receive the self-giving agape, I will lay my life down for you, love of Jesus Christ, 
and you step into fellowship and unity with Christ through the gateway of forgiveness. And so you become alive with the same Jesus Christ. That's the language of Paul in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, alive together with Christ. That's why John is saying this, is, this new commandment's become true in Christ and in you. He's not saying Jesus has done it and it's amazing and we should, we should look at him and aspire to be like him and, and imitate him. He's saying, no, 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 little children. Look at what the gospel's done. It's made you united to the source and demonstration of perfect agape love. And that's why I'm so interested and encouraged by what John does in the next few verses. Because I'm thinking, right, come on, what are we going to do? What's the activity of agape love? And John will return to this theme in, through the rest of the book in chapters 3 and 4. But in this passage, I find it very interesting that he doesn't say, love your brothers and sisters in light with agape love. And this is what it looks like. Hospitality, encouragement, challenge, prophetic and so forth. He doesn't do that. He simply reminds them of who they are. He exhorts them to this extraordinary challenge and then verses 12 to 14 reminds them who they are. Verses 12 to 14. This kind of poetic language that John uses. Little children and fathers and young men. By fathers, he means fathers and mothers, persons, young men, young men and women. Commentators disagree and get in a bit of a tangle about is he describing literal people or is it about spiritual maturity, different ages, spiritually within the life of the church? He probably is doing the latter, I think. But in a way, to kind of draw everybody in. He's like, those of you who just become Christian, this is for you. Those of you who have been Christian 50 years, this is for you. Those of you who are older in the faith, younger in the faith, male, female, this is who you are if you are in Christ. That's what he's trying to say in verses 12 to 14 that I've just slightly summarized on the screen for you. He wants to remind you, if you want to be an agape-loving church, not receiving but giving, this is who you are. I'm going to jump around these points, just like John does. He reminds us that he he wants believers, he says to believers, you're you're people who know God. That's who you are. You're people who know God. And what is God? Who is God? God is love. John says that in the next chapter. God is agape. And here he's saying, if you're a believer, you know the God that is agape love. Then he says, you know the God who has defeated the enemy, overcome the evil one. He says, you know the God who has defeated the enemy, the enemy who's distorted love, who's tried to wreck it and ruin it and stain it and cause us to reverse it and exchange it. He has been defeated at the cross. You know the Jesus who crushed the enemy, the one who tries to distort love. You know him. You're on the winning team and you're united to the winner. Do you not have to walk in a distorted, diluted version of of what love could be? You can be a demonstrator of agape love, not because Jesus demonstrated it, but because Jesus crushed the one who tried to defeat it. You can do those things. Thirdly, he says, you know the God whose word. He says, here, I write to you young men. I think he means people who are young in the faith. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. 
The word of God abides. He says, you know the word. If you know the word of God, you will keep seeing the big story of the Bible, as I said before, all centered around those two big commandments. God initiating through agape love the possibility of us knowing his agape love and being able to love him. And then as an overflow of that, being able to love each other in the same way. John says, meditate on your Bible. Open the word of God. You want to be an agape loving Christian? Theme of 2019 so far? Get your Bible open. Keep on seeing the big story of the Bible in the different ways it comes through. You'll keep on seeing glimpses of Jesus in in Genesis, Leviticus, Hosea. That's how to grow in agape love. The word of God abiding in you. Lingering in you going deep into you. And fourthly, he says, you, little children, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. In other words, you're in fellowship with the God who forgave you. The God who forgave you. How? The God who forgave you with agape love. The the God who said, not just, this is what agape love looks like, laying lives down for friends. The God who did that, he's forgiven you by laying his life down for you. In fact, laying his life down for those of you who might always reject him. Jesus didn't lay his life down for us on the condition that we would love him back. He laid his life down for us whilst people were rejecting him and scorning him and mocking him. And for 2,000 years, people have continued to do that. And that's, hear me, okay with Jesus. Hear what I'm saying in the sense that he didn't do it as a conditional, I'm doing this thing, banking on X people responding to me. He did it as an overflow of the love of God to draw as many as possible because he's patient and kind. to himself. He laid his life down for us, his friends, but not because you and I were intrinsically good. I know what, I think I know at least a little bit of what our culture would want us to keep on believing, that fundamentally the human being is good. I'm on a trajectory towards increasing goodness, as long as we believe in ourselves more and more. That's not what the Bible teaches. We were not intrinsically good. We were intrinsically fallen and fallible and broken and dark, and yet Christ laid his life down for us. Not because you were good, not because you would give anything back in return, but out of sheer agape love. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And he's right. People like Arno Beltram exist. They do extraordinary things. They give their lives people that they think are, are, are worthy of rescuing. And then Paul says in verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we grow, King's Church, more in agape love? We get to know the God who is agape love. And then we begin to help each other become known and loved. We don't wait to be agape love. We take steps to agape love each other. I know what some of you are thinking, or at least I think I do, which is, it's all very awful, you can build this lovely picture. I've been here for a few years, and I haven't received much of this myself. Maybe, maybe, and I'm sorry if that's the case. But what's the answer? Arms folded and wait till it comes? Get to know the God who is agape love, who whilst you were still a sinner, who whilst you were far from him, whilst you wanted nothing to do with him, gave his life for you. You dwell on that, you open the word, and you see glimpses of this Jesus all through the Bible who would do that for you. Your heart begins to change. Mine does, a little bit. A long way to go, but it has begun to change. Not by trying really hard and gritting my, gritting my fists. No God. Then we begin to be able to know and love each other. 
And then what happens? We begin to make God known. We begin to be able to do and fulfill the mission for which we were called, to make God known to this borough and to this nation and even to this world. Because Jesus was really clear on that. Jesus was really clear on that. He says, I want you and you will love each other like I have loved you. And I want you to do that partly because that is one of the main ways by which a world that would love to know what real love is and is crying out for it, that's one of the ways where they'll see what it's like and how to get it through you, loving each other. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And guess what? He used the word, or the word closely approximated to agape. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you've got the right apologetic arguments, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you can provide a clever explanation for suffering and, and creation and, and exclusive truth and so forth, then say that. By this, you will know that you, by this, people will know that you are my disciples. If you've got your life all together and you don't do bad things, don't say that. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape love for one another. Let me just close with this. I told you last week about my, uh, our wedding uh, two years ago, three years ago. And uh, the tent of light, some of you, I think we're connecting with the idea of not staying in darkness, but stepping back into the light. And uh, one of the reasons why we had a great wedding was because of this church. We had a great wedding because people in this church said, oh, we will serve and love and bless you in the best way that we can. And there was a moment that sticks in my mind at the, towards the, uh, during the meal. We were on the top table uh, next to my father-in-law. And there was one couple, and actually in this church and here this morning, but I won't embarrass them. They came and they, had, uh, they were serving the meal. They had volunteered to be basically waiters for our meal. And they came and brought some uh, food to us during the, the second half of the meal. And by this point, my father-in-law had begun to realize there's something slightly odd happening here. There are these people that keep doing things for free. So this wedding kind of partly happened because somebody made a cake for free. Then there's this, this wedding party happened because somebody provided like sound equipment. Somebody else appeared and, and, and led the service. Somebody else uh, has, made a, has produced a tent from nowhere. And my father-in-law said this very interesting thing. As this couple brought, their, brought some food to us, they hadn't come to the service they hadn't participated really at all in the joy and the wonder of the day that much. They just have volunteered to be waiters and bring food out. And as they did that, my father-in-law turned to me, and I won't forget what he said. He just said, who are these people? Who are these people? Now, I wish I had a pithy response at the time. I don't even know what I said. I love your daughter. <laughs> but what I wish I had said was, these people have been so captivated by this extraordinary God who is love, who's poured out sacrificial, self-giving, agape love. I will pursue your ultimate good, whatever it costs me, love. They've been so captivated by him and by that that they just start giving it away. That's what I wish I'd said. We will make God known as we learn to enjoy and meditate on and receive the perfect love of God and love each other like that. We will do it imperfectly. We will get it wrong. We will stumble. We will hurt. We will offend. We will let each other down. And that's okay because there's a better opportunity to be agape loving. More chance to forgive. More chance to bear with. More chance to exhort. More chance to rebuke and admonish in love. So it's a win-win. When we get it wrong, we can get more chance to grow in what God is calling us to. 
We're going to do a couple of things right now. We're going to take communion together because that is what we do on the first Sunday of the month. Also, it's a great moment to do it. Because before we start thinking about doing agape love, let's just enjoy and give thanks and meditate on the God who had his body broken and his blood spilt in the most extraordinary act of life-laying-down, self-giving agape love. So maybe the band could just could join me. Um, communion will appear shortly to my right if you prefer to take alcohol-free uh, juice and gluten-free bread, that will also be there as well. As we always say here at King's Church, if you're amongst us and not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Well done for being here. We would ask that you don't take a, a meal that is for Christians. It wouldn't kind of make sense, I think, to take communion before you've believed in what communion represents. So don't take it, but use this moment to consider taking Christ. We would love to see you step into fellowship of God. You can experience today the ultimate perfect love that every human heart cries out for through confession and repentance and stepping into the family of God. For those of us that are Christians, this is a great moment just to ground ourselves afresh in the core of our faith, to thank God for the God who came and poured himself out for us. So we're going to, I think, sing in a moment together and what we do really at King's Church we just try and be as both reverent and relaxed as we can reverent that this meal is a big deal as I've just tried to say relaxed in the sense that we're family so we take it together we might pray for each other we might hear God for each other and go lay hands on each other you might prefer just to, to stand and sing for a bit and then take communion you might want to sit and just enjoy and talk to God so these next five, ten minutes are for you to engage with God as you feel led. If you're a believer, we'd love you to take communion at some point in that. If you feel like God's speaking to you for the whole church, people here, come and, come and share as well. Okay? Can I ask us all just to stand for a moment? And if you wish to take communion straight away, you can. Okay. Just a practical thing, as Jason's helped remind me, the gluten-free bread and the juice is actually at the back, um, and the wine and traditional bread is to my right, your, your left. Father God, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for building this family more and more into one that revels in and demonstrates your remarkable love. Thank you for communion. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for what it tells us about agape love. The God who wouldn't just abandon or observe us in our sin, but would come and rescue us from it by giving of his very self thank you Jesus and I just pray for these next few minutes would you help us to respond to you either for the first time or another way that glorifies you and that helps us to step into the life and the goodness that is for the believer and for the local church Amen